Hello, and welcome to the Untitled Art Podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Schmidt. This episode is the second in a series of exhibition walkthroughs, where I'll be visiting shows and recording on-site interviews with curators and collectors, taking the time to listen to not only their interpretations of the artwork, but the stories behind them, who made them, when, and where, how they came to be, and how they came to end up in the collection that now preserves or exhibits them. I'll be visiting private and public collections and exhibitions in this series and traveling to new shows. Last month, I traveled to Rome, the birthplace of Western civilization. I went to the legendary Galleria Borghese, a museum that houses a collection of ancient sculpture and art from the Renaissance, Baroque, and Neoclassical periods. Standing in the midst of a park that was created along with the building to form a single and magnificent complex. It is home to iconic works of art by Titian, Caravaggio, Raphael, Correggio, Veronese, Parmigianino, Bellini, Bernini, and Zhang Enli. One of these is not like the other. Zhang Enli is in fact a contemporary artist working today who was invited to exhibit at the Borghese as part of the Contemporary Committee program. I was lucky enough to join the artist and the exhibition's curator at the Borghese for a tour on a beautiful spring morning. It is the morning of Tuesday, April 9th. We are here in Rome at the Villa Borghese looking at the work of Zhang and Li, uh, an exhibition curated by Davide Quadrino called Birdcage. Mi chiamo Davide Quadrio, sono un curatore indipendente e il fondatore di ArtHub, che è un'associazione That's the co-curator of the exhibition, Davide Quadrio, an independent curator and founder of ArtHub. Originally from Italy, Davide lived for over 20 years in China and has organized hundreds of exhibitions, educational activities and exchanges in China and abroad. Zhang Li is an artist from China living in Shanghai for a very long time and the connection between Zhang Li and Borghese is per se extremely intriguing and interesting. Zhang Li was saying that it's an honor for him to be in this place because it's actually the house and the heart of the Renaissance of Italy. And there are masterpieces from Bernini and Bellini and Raphael and Tiziano and Caravaggio all here around. So for him to be here is actually to realize a dream. It is a dream to be here, I must say, also as a curator. So Galleria Borghese has got an amazing story. It's not a normal museum. It's never been really a museum. It's something that goes beyond that. We are in the center of Rome in this amazing, huge park that it was actually the park of the house uh, of this amazing palazzo that uh, Scipione Borghese built at the beginning of the 17th century. The story of the palazzo is per se something that for us has been extremely thrilling to really understand in a very deep way. <clears throat> and actually also somehow it was the origin of all the project. Galleria Borghese was born as a representative palazzo for Scipione, who was a cardinal, he was the nephew of the Pope at that time. 
he's been like collecting wildly antiques, but also contemporary, at that time, contemporary painters and artists. And the building was built for the collection. Mm -hmm. So it's now vice versa. The project has been thinking of a house for his own works mm -hmm. that he's been collecting for many years. And this feeling of an amazing sort of a shrine, you know, for art is really something that you can see from the exterior of the building. You can imagine something special, but you cannot see it from outside because the outside is very simple. The color of the facade is very sort of light golden yellow and it's almost pearly surfaces. And then you get into, and it's actually the magic happens because there is not a single centimeter of the building inside that is not mm -hmm. completely decorated and designed. Yeah and fully equipped, you know, with visual content. And this striking difference between what is inside and what is outside was the beginning of the journey that Jane Lee took throughout the building, the gardens, and then also this amazing place which is called the birdcage, that it was part of a sort of secondary building attached to the Galleria Borghese uh, through this amazing little Renaissance garden that is called the Secret Garden. So all that is, of course, incredibly powerful as a starting point for anything that is related to art, I think. Absolutely. I'd like to know when is the first time that En Lee came to the Borghese? So, Enli came here uh, with me last year, the beginning of last year. And of course it was a surprise, but also it was not a surprise, because uh, of course a lot of the works that is inside the Galleria Borghese, I still remember when he came, you know, of course it was extremely emotional, you know, because you see things that you saw for so many years and you studied, you know, being an artist, a trained artist actually, and painter, as he's, he's defined himself. So he was extremely powerful. And the first thing that um, Dan Lee was explaining is that the moment that he came here, he really realized the complexity of the connection between the contemporary and the past, and especially being him a painter, as he defines himself, you know, the position of being a painter in the contemporary world, and the complexity of actually doing something here in this context, and what, what does it mean, and what, what does it mean to be a painter today, you know, and how connect, you know, to the tradition of 3,000 years of passing this context, it was incredibly challenging for him, especially because, you know, he thinks that there is a sort of spiritual connection with, you know, being a painter today in the past, and there is also a meaning of you know, trying to find ways to comment you know, through the contemporary eyes on the history of an amazing tradition that is a painting tradition. So what it was how to tackle that, you know, how to think about his work here and how to think about the act of painting in this context was really at the heart of some of the thoughts and that he had before starting the project. And of course, it, for him, is you know something that is extremely important nowadays, also to reflect on what painting means. You know, and there is still a significance of not working on other media, but actually keeping on you know this medium alive and relevant. You know, for the development of contemporary art. It's a, such a beautiful 
response. Thank you. One reason why I wanted to have this interview and come to this show in particular is it's sort of an extreme example of contemporary globalization. You know, we have this Chinese contemporary painter here in one of the most iconic museums for artwork from the antiquity, Renaissance and beyond. So I wanted to know in, in Lee's formative education with art and painting, if he was looking then at Renaissance painting at Italian artists, if so, if there was a particular artist here in the collection that spoke to him most strongly. Before asking this question, can I just comment on yes. some of the language that you had, because I think it's very important and dear to us, in the sense that, of course, he as an artist, but me as, as a curator, producer, whatever you want to call me, based in China for a long time, we are ourselves a very hybrid in that mm-hmm. sense. And somehow we've been reflecting a lot, being in the position of being, you know, not in the cultural centers of what until yesterday was the cultural centers in the West and to really think about what it means you know, to come from a globalized world but also a sort of periphery of some cultural platforms of places. It's important you know, that in the contemporary art world now we start thinking and talking also about contemporary art coming not from Europe or the States in a different way. Mm-hmm. And I think the language is extremely important. For instance, something that I know that he hates and I hate as well, this kind of simplicity of thinking of an artist becoming the Chinese artist mm-hmm. and not an artist from China. And it's something that grammatically doesn't really make a lot of change, but in the sense of the meaning it does, you know, mm-hmm. because the fact that Jian Li Khan from China doesn't make it actually Chinese artist yes. in that sense. And the fact that I've been Italian, but being in China for so long doesn't make me neither. This Italian. part of the conversation reminded me of a panel that was presented at the latest edition of Untitled Art San Francisco this past January. So we're going to go back in time just a few months to listen to a snippet of that conversation, which was led by Zhaju Wang, the Associate Curator of Chinese Art at the Guggenheim, joined by curators Mark Meyer from San Francisco's Asian Art Museum and Marie Martreur of Cadist. Titled Thinking Geography, they spoke about their collaborative work with artists whose practice critically reflects our perception, definition, misconception, and misunderstanding of Asia, and its relationship with the rest of the world. According to Jayu, geography is an imaginative tool to test the boundary of our intellectual and emotional limitations. Of course, it's not a new idea to, you know, thinking art and engaging with art and discourses from a geographic narrative. There is this concept of meta-geography, where it is to divide the world into all these continents to construct ideas of Asia, Europe, Middle East, North America. For me, I think it became much more meaningful and also effective to really deconstruct these ideas as a physical geographic locations or places, but a set of tools that you can use and a toolkit to think about some of the issues that we're dealing with today through the lens of art. And in particularly in the context of Asia, I would like to put forward a quote from a historian or cultural critic, Wang Hui, who is a professor at the Tsinghua University in Beijing. In his text, later turned into a book called The Politics of Imagining Asia, he argues Asia is actually a European concept. What does it mean? It means the concept of Asia in his book and, of course, in his writing, 
it's much more an idea, a set of understanding than the location of how we geographically setting the boundary of Asia. So for him, this concept of Asia is a European concept and is pretty much invented in the 18th and 19th century when Europe was undergoing this height of enlightenment as well as the colonial projects. So Asia becomes a thing that European position itself in relation to. Therefore, European was European because of the existence of Asia. He also pointed out that particularly at the time, European is more created this narrative based on three categories, the birth and rising of nation-state, capitalism, but these contexts are lacking in Asia because Asia is pretty much empire structure. There was not nation-state and also it was no capitalism, right? Then there's this process of elevating the European project as, you know, the capitalism as well as the democratic process and the so-called progress and advancement of the nation-state versus this backwardness of empire as well as this tribute system. So this is how Wang Hui argues in his book that the concept of Asia is formed. It still has its relevance today because we're still pretty much considered in the pure art world context and how the relationship between Asian and European is constructed. This is why I think it would be interesting to put these questions forward and somehow deconstruct that when we think about Asia, it's just places, right? It's just artists coming from all these countries, but more as how these concepts are created, practiced, manipulated throughout the history and how it would influence our thinking today and also the practice of artists today and how that could connect it back to the Bay Area, what kind of new meaning would rise from it. For the Asian Art Museum, Asia is a given, right? It's like you work with this framework of Asia. More an urgent task is how do you engage with contemporary? I want to return to this question as how does the museum defines Asia? and how that has been perhaps evolving and adapting and how does that goes into the mission statement of the museum as well? Well, we actually start our collection galleries with that question, what is Asia? Mm-hmm. And the acknowledgement that it's a Greco-Roman construction of a false sense of geography and then looking at the specifics of it. Embedded in that as well is something that I think is crucially important is how do you start engaging and thinking about not only Asia as a concept, but what happens through the diasporas? Like, does Asia exist in the Americas and what does that look like? What are the questions in terms of how we think about regionality, specificity, and culture and cultural interchange and exchange? How can we also mine those types of histories, not just here, but between countries, let's say in Asia, to understand some of those types of relationships? And how can artists bring new light to that, but also make visible those things that, from the outside, as individuals living here, might not be aware of? Thinking about how artists practice engage in questions of empire or the post-colonial Mindset and thinking about how to complicate those histories in the context of the Asian Art Museum is something that I've been really interested in and the type of imagination to push elements of that discourse further but also allow a sense of imagination to think about other possibilities in terms of that history, in terms of social structures, economic structures and such, but also cite it within 
considering our audience and the people visiting the Asian Art Museum here in San Francisco? When we talk about Asia or any geographically oriented practice, I think it became even more relevant to speak about the birth and the original model of museum and why it exists. Today, the museum is still more or less a continuation of this Victorian model of educate the public, right? How museum poses through the making of exhibitions and through the engagement of art or objects, also in the encyclopedia museum context, is to provide this knowledge to the public. But then the model is gradually getting outdated because there are so many other sources that we could engage knowledge in a much more interactive way. But the museum seems to be struggling in terms of how to reinvent itself. And then for larger institutions, like I mentioned, the Encyclopedia Museum, like the Metropolitan or the Louvre, many of these geographically based categorizations of displays and exhibits and as we all know, the objects are either put in a nicer way, it's traded with the places that are being displayed there, but with force to bring it back. How could we uh, re-engage with that kind of a history? I know many museums now have practice of returning these objects to their country of origin and culture of origin, but at the same time, is it effective? and how the context is not so black and white, right? It's not about originality or who robs who and who got what from where. And it's much more fascinating to think about the merging and reappropriation and appropriation. And in the case of the United States, you talk about diaspora and then how these objects play a role in the experience of the diaspora. You cannot separate it in a very clear black and white way. So maybe... I would be interested in thinking about how could contemporary art or the mapping of these ideas by contemporary artists could contribute these discourses. It's not just curators' job or it's not museums' administrators' job to figure out, but it's also the practitioners, the artists, and it's more of a collaborative work. It's definitely collaborative. Oh, there's so many ways I could go about this. I don't know if I can really speak to the question about provenance mm-hmm. and objects and ethics. Sure. But I'm really interested in what you're raising about how artists deal with these frameworks and diaspora. An artist that I worked with, Ranu Mukherjee, gave me a book by Shizad Dawood, whose work I actually discovered while I was in Seoul. He is an artist based in London of, I believe, Pakistani descent and has a lot of similar concerns. But diaspora and how can it influence a mode or an approach? I was reading this like about a week ago and came upon this quote where he's talking about his family's story and going from India to Pakistan to the Gulf to London at a time in the 80s. So he writes that following this meandering personal trail, diaspora then becomes divergent determinant, and it was by following this specific trajectory that I could start to reconcile myself with a more liberated use of the term. Seeing diaspora as an active and even freewheeling mode seemed to present a fresh approach to thinking about multiplicity, not just of culture and archetype, but of ideas that are necessarily diasporic in terms of their future and network nature. That type of freewheeling approach, permission about this different hybridities, cultural mixings of cultural diffusion. Like, how do I connect to my 
father's culture, when Spanish might not be my first language, but simultaneously there are modes of thought or modes of expression through that that I can connect to, but I can't own it or hold it. So what does that free us up to do? And how can we give that type of permission to others to think about that maybe the only thing museums can teach us is how to deal with ambiguity. While we can hold the object, we can't hold its culture or its meaning Mm -hmm. in quite that literal way. I'm really inspired in thinking about that experience of being both that and at the same point maybe neither that allows us to have a sense of freedom in thinking about ideas, thinking about culture and creating new culture. I think I'm certainly less interested in this idea of provenance because it's important to acknowledge figuring out the factual informations of certain objects. But then how can you re-engage the objects to give it a new life is almost different from saying we have to fixate it on these provenance and these facts and materials You use the term ambiguity. For me, it's more interested to think in terms of appropriation and reappropriation. Culture really is in the perpetuating modes of appropriation, really. It became frustrating if you have to distance the originality, the provenance with its resonance today. It is truly the coffin for any objects or artwork because it will stay there as when it was created. Marie, you want to say something? Yeah, it's interesting to think that somehow like our vision for understanding of heritage is encapsulated in the object. Mm-hmm. Like if you preserve the object or where it is, that's how you're going to preserve this cultural heritage. But if you kind of shift the perspective a little bit and consider heritage in more the forms of knowledge and these traditions or the ritual or everything that's kind of almost immaterial, how do you we think through heritage mm-hmm. through that aspect rather than the object itself? And how the object actually isn't the heritage, but a tool or technology to actualize the heritage also. With those words in mind, we return to the conversation between Davide and Zhang Enli at the Galleria Borghese. And the importance of hybridity and the importance of thinking how to come in a globalized world in a meaningful way is also part of the push that created this show. We are at the beginning of a very important and instrumental shift which is going to be also beneficial to the Western world to rethink also history of art and the role of contemporary art in also commenting, for instance, our past. The real amazing beauty about this project has been working together, you know, with an artist and thinking through the eyes of an artist coming from so far away, but yet knowing this place, how many artists in the West can actually say that you put them in an iconic place in China and they know the art of that, you know? The use of a laugher. We know so the first, when he was a child, he had a small book that he was introduced in Raphael's paintings. And he, of course, they were amazing. And he was like flipping through that every day and looking at the beauty. It was overwhelming. Then, of course, becoming older and then becoming a successful artist, moving around Europe much more often, it was possible for him to see the original ones. And he remembered that once he was actually checking in Milan, of the preparatory drawings of a painting by Raphael and you notice that from comparing the drawings and then the actual painting they were only like 
two characters that were added in the painting and the rest it was already completely thought through. That kind of maimed beauty was overwhelming for him and it was extremely powerful as a capacity of Raphael to create something that was so perfect. It was so important for the history of human art to see that in such a short time that Raphael lived, he was able to do such an accomplishment. When he was young, they were saying that in the Renaissance there were only three very important people, and it was Da Vinci, Raphael, and... Uh, Michelangelo. Michelangelo, sorry, yes, <laughs> was actually... It's so much more complex than that. <clears throat> what about Bernini? Yeah. yeah. That's a really perfect segue into talking about the work here, because you have a lot in common with Raphael in the sense that often your sketch or sort of the grid in your work remains present, and then the gesture is also there. So you see both the preparatory aspect and then the painterly gesture of course, I'm just talking about the surface and some of your paintings here in the birdcage of the Borghese. So, of course, when he was young, he really loved Raphael, but then Caravaggio got into China as well, because we have to say that when he was studying, you know, a lot of books were not there. So every time that there was like a book that was published, somebody became like not only a bestseller, but it became incredibly powerful in terms of uh, the mirroring of those images into the artworks of artists in China. And so Caravaggio became like, you know, especially the lights and, you know, how the perfection and the beauty of how the structure of the painting is being put together, that it was almost filmic in a way, that it created like a very strong impression in him. One of the things that also was very important for him to see in Caravaggio's paintings is not only this kind of filmic quality, but also the understanding of the social behavior and the social structures you know, and the ability also of expressing them through the painting itself. And there is also this kind of aspect that it was really related to the capacity of Caravaggio's painting of becoming almost like a theater pieces, acting pieces. It is very interesting if you think about that time you know, there was no light, there was no film, there was no anything that it was related to the possibility of recording. But the capacity they had to get to the same result using a very different medium, it was always something that fascinates him. From this, I gave this introduction because for me this is the starting point of the work that you see here. Also because I come from a personal history where for me painting, even when I was a child, it was an incredible way to express myself you know, in a very particular and solitary way. You know, anything that it was connected to my emotions, either they were happy or not. And this is where all my work starts. And these are the two things, the history of the painting in the West and my ability of painting and using the gesture of painting as a psychological tool. These are the two things that are the base what you see here. The birdcage, it was really built as a birdcage, but you have to think about the birdcage on the palazzo style, you know, so it's an incredible late Renaissance building that it was at the end, and it's still at the end, of course, of the secret garden, so it really connects and closes the secret garden, and it creates this incredible attractive point as an architecture when you come out from the main building is divided in a very simple way with two rooms. So you enter and you have a little 
in Italy we call vestibolo, which is a you know a place where you could somehow change and, and entree. And then on the two side you have a specular two rooms that are open at the top with the cage. The rest of the building is beautifully painted. You can only see some of the remains of the original wall paintings that they might make a sort of cage per se. So you see the transparencies of the building, you know, you see the sky with all the birds and animals flying outside the cage. In the middle, you have these two pinnacles, which are made with a structure, with a net that covers it, so not to allow the birds to escape. And really at the center is the place where Jain Lee decided to create additional architecture that is also mind-making something very ancestral, you know, it's something that is related to the power of course, so there are two towers that look like a Babylon tower, or you can look at them, also can be a religious tower. And his idea was, was connecting this place and the architecture, as we know, through the Silk Road, you know, into the pagodas and into the architecture from the east. <laughs> a bit of Italian flair. So just to elaborate a little bit further, the structures are about a meter and a half. They're sort of a cubic format where it starts with a large cube that's about a meter and a half squared, and then they subsequently get slightly smaller. It almost looks like the golden ratio, but I don't think it's quite that. It goes up one, two, three, four, five, six cubes on top of each other, so they're subsequently smaller, and the structure itself becomes about, I would say, four, four and a half meters tall. More is even six meters. Six meters, wow. Yeah. That uh, speaks to my... Seven. It's six and six <laughs> meters, eight is... Yeah. yeah, yeah. The perspective is a bit yeah. strange, but I assure you that it's actually almost seven. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we and then actually I th- had to make some new calculation because we thought it was smaller and we had to readapt the structure. So it goes all the way up to the top of the birdcage before the wire sort of cage starts. It's important to note there is a hollow entrance at the beginning, mm-hmm. so the work itself can really consume the viewer. It appears as though it's meant to sort of invite the viewer inside. Yeah, and it's also a door that you can only pass through in a very tight manner. He decided to have this passage to go through the architecture, but you cannot just stroll in. You really need to feel the density of the structure coming onto you. So if you go through, it's actually an amazing, strange sensation as well, because you feel It's like the, the city of, of Rome itself. It is. I think that you're right. Basically, all the concepts of the work starts from a very cubic pixel element that has been repeated throughout the exhibition in all the different possible aspects. The structure is made with little cubes that they become bigger cubes and then they create a basic structure that you can interpret as a religious military fortress. What I would also like to ask Enli is about the use of material because upon first entry for me, you know, all the cubes are painted on the exterior and it continues on to the inside and it's these beautiful, lovely, abstract gestures in deep yellows and soft reds and a forest green and this ashen gray continues throughout the structure. And because of the way it's painted, 
I thought, and I heard a lot of comments last night, that at first people thought it was tile, a material that was more permanent. And I think that's something we jump to because we're at the Borghese and because we see marble and we see frescoes. Upon closer look, it becomes clear that this is not a permanent material. This is a very different kind of material. So he always likes to work with simple material. Also, I mean, he uses the word very, not only simple, but also quotidian material. He doesn't like to use precious material. And he combines that, and also anything that he does, actually, including the content of the painting that he does very often, are very simple object of the daily life that surrounds him. He also combines that with painting and gesture related to painting that come from the tradition of the painting and frescoes, for instance. So the colors that he uses, you know, the reds and the yellows and some of the colors that you can see on the towers and on the structure that he built here, actually from that tradition. There are also, of course, some blacks coming from the Chinese tradition. What is being bringing in through the gesture and of the painting is also the colors and the flexibility of the nature around the building, because we are at the end of the day, you know, completely surrounded by almost a little forest in the middle of room, very well tended forest, but still, you know, there is this kind of natural elements that you wanted to bring in. And the other thing which is very important for the people to imagine around these structures are the building itself and the fact that the painting of the structure of this tower somehow completes the mural paintings original from the beginning of this building and somehow they expand on that and they take the colors of the frescoes and they bring it back on the surface of the tower you know making this tower almost like fitting exactly into the space being a structure without time when i first learned of this exhibition i thought well wow, perfect. You know, you look at Enli's work and you think of the Borghese and it just seemed like a really perfect fit. So bravo, of course, to you and your team for recognizing that. But what struck me the most was in the Borghese, you have this incredibly exquisite marble and also faux marble. So there's this technique that goes back to early Renaissance traditions and earlier than the Renaissance, way back with frescoes of sort of the trompe l'oeil before we called it the trompe l'oeil. Because of the texture and because of the way that he's treated the surface, it may be easy to read it as a precious material, but then you see the packing tape and the packing tape is explicitly there. We're very much aware of it. Even some of it has yellowed. You really can't miss it. So that really throws the viewer back into reality where we realize it's a faux technique. It's like faux marble. So I wanted to know if he had thought of the marble in the Borghese when thinking of using the tape and the cardboard. So what is amazing about the Borghese and what this kind of feeling of the term is that it, that background painting somehow supporting uh, the art that is in, you know, so make it even more complete and create a stage situation. When you talk about 
the way that he's painting and also the way that he's finding solutions in the making of his work, there was not an intention of copying that effect because it's a complete difference. So the surfacing for him is about the painting. What he wanted to add here is what he calls it be true. So it's like a contrast of what you see and how you see it. This idea of not hiding the imperfection, but creating a way to underline the imperfection that it becomes part of the structure itself. All the different elements that you can see from the painting to the tape to the very visible connection between the different cubes that create the, the structure, he never wants to hide them. He uses that in a way that they become structural and at the same time they're so present and they're so functional that uh, they create an expansion of the painting and the work itself. Was this all made here in Rome? In Shanghai. Mm. Now it was done in Shanghai. Yeah. He came here, as we said, like, a few times and then he took a lot of pictures and videos and things and then he's been working on that in the studio. Mm-hmm. But you see the perfection of how the two towers are actually in the space. He studied also the light because mm-hmm. each of the two rooms, yeah. even if they look exactly alike, the quality of light is different yeah. because of the nature around and yes. because of you know, the position of it. So the palettes of color actually change yeah. among the two towers. And then it was brought here and it was built here and it was retouched somehow. My last question, and thank you so much, I know you'll have to run straight after this, is um, we've talked about the relationship with Raphael and with the Borghese, but back to the material, this works relationship to Arte Povera. And so for him it's very simple. What he loves about Arte Povera is of course his amazing capacity of using very simple things and very simple materials and yet they're so strong and powerful and resolute and perfect. So this kind of power is something that for him is extremely natural to think of and it was something that is part of what he wants to express and work with. It's like opposite that attracts to each other. And yeah, they're so powerful and perfect. Thank you so much. Grazie mille, è stata un'ottimissima intervista, quindi spero che da dovunque voi siate arrivati a Roma, da qui a luglio ci sono tre mesi a godere di questa meravigliosa sensazione tra passato e presente. This brings us to the end of episode 11, recorded live from the Galleria Borghese in Rome. I want to give a special thanks to Davide and Zhang Li for joining me on this episode, and also to Jiayu Wang, Mark Mayer, and Marie Martreur for their thoughtful discussion that was presented at the fair last January. Additional thanks are in order to Mnemonic Recordings for producing this episode, with additional assistance from Charles Gaddis, and for my team at Untitled, who share in my belief that by tuning out, you can tune in. And finally, a huge thanks to the composer of the original soundtrack you heard at the beginning and end of this episode by Celia Hollander, from the score for Madeline Hollander's performance Mile, originally performed at Untitled Miami Beach in 2015. (laughs) 
Ciao from Roma, signing off. I'm your host, Amanda Schmidt, and I hope you'll join us again on the Untitled Art Podcast. Thank you.